Welcome to IB Talk, the leading podcast for the insurance industry across Australia, New Zealand, and throughout the Asia Pacific region. Brought to you by Insurance Business. Hello, and welcome back to IB Talk. I'm Danny Wood, news editor of Insurance Business Australia. Nick Martin is head of strategic risk consulting in the Pacific for the global brokerage Marsh. Sydney-based Martin leads a team of about 40 Marsh consultants, and his responsibilities include cybersecurity, crisis management, and resilience capabilities. He hasn't always worked in the insurance industry. His career includes a decade with the Royal Australian Navy as an SAS explosives clearance diver. Nick Martin, welcome to IB Talk. Thanks, Danny, and thanks for having me on IB Talk. Great to be here. Great. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. Now, your exciting career includes the Pong Su. Now, that was the North Korean heroin smuggling ship that was captured off the Victorian coast in 2003 and linked to North Korea's dictator. It's a pretty complicated story, but could you just briefly sketch that infamous incident? Absolutely. Happy to. Yeah, it was it was actually uh, an exclamation mark on the end of my naval career, so it was, um, it was an exciting way to end it. The, uh, the actual incident itself started with the AFP, Australian Federal Police, as part of a, a drug investigation. And as the vessel tried to um, flee Australian waters, uh, the AFP then obviously contacted the Department of Defence to get some assistance in detaining the vessel. And that's where we came into play. It was on a it was on an Easter weekend back in 2003. And I remember it clearly. I was on a train heading home from um, work, work being the clearance diving team um, based in Sydney. And the call came in that we had to um, be on standby in the event that we may have to board um, one of the Australian warships and head out and detain the, the vessel. So really our job in conjunction with the SAS was ultimately to um, get on board the vessel safely and, and detain the crew and then bring that vessel back to Australia. And and so what was your role exactly? And when you boarded this boat, presumably you were worried they're going to start shooting at you or were you what what was the scene as you got on board? Well, I think um, it's actually quite a good link into what I do today. Uh, really, before you do any of these activities, um, so my role, just to be clear on my role, my role, I was leading the clearance diving detachment, which was... Um, boarding the um, MV Pong Su along with the SAS. Um, our primary role was to act as the, essentially as the naval element going on with the SAS. So the SAS were boarding to reduce the threat. Now that could have been when we were flying in in a helicopter, a sniper or rocket propel grenades. Then when we get on board, there's obviously going to be resistance and if it's armed resistance. Um, my role and the team's role was really to go through and support them, but also remove any any explosive devices, whether that's placed or whether that's on a person. And then once that once the ship's what we would call rendered safe, then we would take command of that vessel like a crew and then be responsible for bringing that vessel back to Australia. So I still... Um, have a lot of comments to this day that my first command was a North Korean merchant ship. Um, and, you know, a lot, a lot of the ex-Navy people think that's hilarious. Um, so that was <laughs> okay. our job. Yeah. That was our job was to really get on board and do that. And while I led the, the clearance diving team in, in undertaking that. And my role then was to act as a, a conduit back to HMAS Stewart, which was the warship that was supporting our return to Australia. So, so what sort of you sort of said that this this links into your current role. So, in a sense, I guess you're probably doing a lot of thought and risk managing 
before you undertake that sort of thing. Is that where it links into your current role? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the big misconceptions, I think, and this might be driven by Hollywood, but is that uh, a special forces team can get called in at short notice, enter a really dangerous environment and be successful. Um, it just doesn't work like that. If, if I was to explain to you the timeline and the process before the embarkation, it's um, it's a significant amount of time and thought. So if you, I'll, I'll run you through it really quickly because I know we don't have all day to explain the whole military appreciation process, but I'll, I'll give you the time that we boarded and then I'll work backwards. So we boarded the vessel at um, very early on Sunday morning. And we chose to do that because we wanted to take advantage of the dawn and the light and the crew's attention, you know, early in the morning. But the reality was we started the planning when we embarked on the HMO steward on the Friday morning, so nearly 48 hours prior. So the, the, the first thing is you've got to make sure you have your right equipment, you get on board, the ship is underway. Then we start getting feeds from um, the surveillance and intelligence picture. So we'll have aircraft telling us the state of the ship, what they observed. We'll have intelligence telling us about previous encounters with uh, North Korean merchant ships and what they've learned from that. And then we'll be feeding that into our planning process. So how do we go through identifying the risks associated with getting on board this vessel and detaining it? And then once we have gone through that process, we actually do a dry run. So we did a dry run on the Saturday where we actually used HMAS Stewart that we were embarked in as the MV Pongsu, and we boarded HMAS Stewart and went through the drill. Now, that always shows you areas for modification and improvement. At the same time, the, the pictures, the intelligence pictures continue to evolve, so there'll be more information coming in, which we're feeding in. And then we had update our planning process, then we brief the team, and then we get ready to undertake the operation on a Sunday. So it, it's very similar to what an organisation, if, if an organisation was trying to get a, a sense of its risk picture and align that risk picture to its strategy, they would be taking in all this information and they'd be constantly adjusting it and then determining you know, some risks they might be willing to take and other risks they're probably not willing to take. And it was very similar for us in how we went about that operation on the MV Pongsu. Mm. So, so what did you see as the biggest risk at the, that point before you actually did the real thing? What were your main concerns? The, the main concern for us at the time was whether they wanted to be boarded or um, and that where they're going to resist. Now, resist comes in many forms. One could be, you know, using gunfire against us as we're trying to board either through a helicopter or through a boat. But the other the other significant concern for us was would they actually um, try and sink the ship once we were on board or prior to us boarding? Um, it, it was really difficult to get a, a sense of whether they would be that extreme or not. And so you have to factor that into your planning now that the, the sensible person would say, well, if that's a risk, the loss of life would be significant and the harm to the Australian Defence Force personnel would be significant. So is it worth it? But you have to take that into account. So how did this event end up playing out? Was it as you expected? Yeah, it, it, um, it was a small amount of resistance, but ultimately I think because we were overwhelming force, um, I think, and, and the way that we planned it out, um, I think it actually resulted in a, a fairly successful operation where, where there was no harm done to anyone, either the Defence Force people or the or the North Korean crew, and we're all brought back to to port safely. So I think that's a sign of a successful operation. Mm, and Nick, you actually steered the boat back to port. 
Yes, I, I didn't physically operate the helm, but um, I had a North Korean crew member support me in doing that. But yes, I was responsible for the ship and, and the crew on board. Mm. Let's talk just a little about your your, your work as a, a mine clearance diving officer. This could be an extremely silly question in said in total naivety, but uh, that that's a, obviously a specific role, and it implies that your that's your job. But are, are there really enough explosives, mines, things like that going on around Australia that you had a full time job clearing those sorts of things for more than ten years? The um there were there was two conflicts in my time. There was um Gulf War one and Gulf War two, so that it's not just what, what's happening within Australia. There was also um, what was happening in Bougainville. Um, so there's a, there was a number of conflicts occurring around both our local region in the Pacific, but also internationally. There's also a lot of um, explosive ordnance left over from World War II, way more than you think on the Barrier Reef, if you want to talk in the Australian context, but also if you go into the South Pacific Islands, the Solomons, Gilbert and Ellis Islands, which are now um, called Tuvalu, um, the Papua New Guinea, the, there's a significant amount of unexploded ordnance still sitting around the Pacific left over as a legacy of World War II. But outside that, we have to prepare for whatever conflict we think we're facing into. So the, uh, there's a lot of training that goes on, both within the Defence Force, you know, across the different services, but also we have to operate quite uh, a lot with the regional navies and then also the United States Navy as well. So that part of it is you're doing the real work, but then a lot of it is actually training and exercising for a potential conflict. Mm, that's interesting what you say about the Barrier Reef and there still being unexploded ordnance. Is there still a so there's still a quite a significant amount around that habitually you would have to go in and de-explode? Um, yes. Uh, is there a lot? I guess there would be. We we really don't know where it all is. A lot of the time, it's the public will identify a piece of explosive, and then we're brought into to what's called render it safe, which is different methods of removing it. Yeah. Let's move on to your job directly before Marsh. You were head of property and security services for the energy company AGL. That that was a security role. Uh, in a way, security and risk management obviously intersect, but. I mean, can you talk about that intersection and and how that how that sort of how they complement each other? I guess designing a, a security management system for an organisation, the basis of that is risk, and uh, it, it actually uses the the international risk standard to support um, risk management from a security perspective. So, if you think about risk management in its purest terms, you're you're trying to identify threats to an organisation. They'll manifest in many forms and produce risks, and those risks need to have controls in place to stop them occurring. And then if you controls aren't effective, you have to do something about that and maybe introduce additional mitigation measures. So with with security, it, it has to has to be assessed and treated like any risk. It's uh it, it would be no different to financial risk, health and safety risk. And the beautiful thing about doing it all under the international standard is that. If they're all assessed and uh, in a similar way, they can be folded up into a risk program that supports the whole organisation. So that's that's how I'd explain how security fits into that when it comes to risk management. And and like I said, no different to how HSC programs work. How if if someone's doing operational risk for an organisation, or if someone's doing financial risk for an organisation, they're all grounded in the same methodology. Could you give a working example of the sort of risk challenges you were dealing with at AGL? 
I can I can sort of talk to risk challenges generally across the uh, energy sector, and the obviously if you if you go back a number of decades, there was the, the spectre of terrorism, um, and then that was from a physical terrorism perspective. And then outside of that, you obviously in the energy industry providers of critical infrastructure to the Australian society. So you have to protect that. And then that can be harmed in many different ways through malicious actors in, internally. It could be done through um, non-violent direct action environmental activists. It can be done by community organisations who oppose projects that are being developed in their local area. So there's a number of security risks that I think are inherent across all um, in the energy sector or any organisation that may have a significant impact on the local environment. And then there's obviously that's evolved to today into the cyber um, threat. And I mean, I think if you look at, if you go back into Estonia a number of years ago, there was um, their energy industry was subject to a significant cyber attack, which essentially crippled the country for a period of time. Um, that's the new threat. So I think the, the, the previous threats that I've spoken about to the energy sector are still there to a certain degree, but we're getting more aspects layered on top of it, such as you know the cyber threat, and that was referenced in the in the recent global risk report um, this year, which um, Marsh McLennan contributes to as part of the the lead up to the Davos and and feeding into that World Economic Forum report. We talk a little bit about um, renewable energy projects because they um, seem to be getting bigger everywhere, especially in Australia and. I guess there's been a lot of publicity around battery fires and, and that sort of thing. But, I mean, how do you see the risks for renewable energy projects? Uh, presumably they're less than oil and gas projects, or is that not necessarily the case? Well, I'm not a, I'm not a renewable energy engineer, so I've got to, I, I won't sort of comment on, on battery fires and, and why they occur. If I was to sort of stay in my lane and what, I, what I'm familiar with when it comes to the renewable energy projects, one of the challenges will be what I've already alluded to. I think there's some appetite to have those projects established in communities, but then there's other aspects of those communities that oppose them. Um, so there's there's that community relations risk to a project um, and the support locally for those projects, and that, and that can be difficult for organisations. There is still the environmental impact. There's still organisations and individuals that believe that the presence of wind turbines or solar plants, you know, has a detrimental visual and environmental impact on the environments that they're placed into. And then finally, if you look at a lot of the, the infrastructure that goes into these projects, it's very similar. So, and, and why you'd say, well, why does that matter? Well, if you think about if a number of projects are using a similar type of control system, for instance, that runs the, the um, wind farm, and that's across multiple organisations. If if a vulnerability's been identified inside that system and it becomes the target of by a threat actor of a cyber attack for ransomware purposes, it's significant because it's not knocking out one company and one solar farm. It might be knocking out multiple companies and multiple solar farms at the same time. You mentioned the cyber risk there, and it's one of your big responsibilities at Marsh. And um, it's one of, I guess, the critical insurance areas at the moment that faces huge challenges. And um, 
a guy called Marcus Stavrakis won this year's Young Actuaries Public Policy Essay Competition with an essay calling for a government-funded cyber insurance pool, much like the cyclone insurance pool. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you have a view on on that sort of thing? I mean, what 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 is the answer to the cyber challenges, and could that be an answer? So on insurance, we my, my team, the cyber team, works quite closely with the cyber broking team, and. So while I'm aware of what's happening in the market, I can't give insurance advice, obviously. I'm not an insurance broker. But what I what I can see and, and what I understand is that the, the market itself is becoming much more educated on what the prevailing threat is and, so I, and where the vulnerabilities are in organisations. So it's allowing them to be much better informed at what type of insurance coverage they're giving. Um, at the same time, it is recognised that cyber insurance for a lot of organisations is, is a bit vexed for them on two fronts. One is to get the insurance, there needs to be a significant investment in their organisation to uplift their internal capability. So there's a there's a financial impact there. And then the actual insurance itself is, is once again another financial impact on the business. Um, why they need insurance? And you're probably thinking, well, that's obvious um, to protect the business and do risk transfer. The reality is that a lot of organisations need the insurance because a component of the insurance policy is what's called cyber incident management. And by that, I mean, if you have a, a significant event and we'll use ransomware because I think it's reasonably well known what that is and how it plays out, the response to that ransomware event is generally attached to the insurance policy for most organisations in that they're very, they might have a very small cyber team, so they rely very heavily on the insurance arrangements to support them in that event. And then that response is critical, you know, essentially people coming in and identifying the, the impact, the source of the the um, the impact on their business and then dealing with that, that that a lot of the time is tied to your insurance. So that's that's why I think it plays such a critical role. Now, to answer your question on um, the Australian Reinsurance Pool Corporation and its role in you know, the cyclone insurance and also, I mean, if you think back, it was terrorism. Not uh, I mentioned it previously, but that's still a big part of the ARPC. Do I think that there's an opportunity for them to support organisations that can't get insurance for those two reasons? They don't have the funds to invest or they don't have the funds to take out appropriate cover? I would, I would actually say yes. I think there is an opportunity for the Australian government to support small businesses, particularly now that there's such a heavy focus by you know, the Department of Home Affairs on um, through the SOCI Act to make sure that critical organisations to Australian society all have a reasonable level of cyber resilience within their business. Let's move on to to climate change, another huge issue for the insurance industry, including Marsh. And brokerages like Marsh are in a pretty critical position because you can really drive oil and gas companies to transition out of dirty forms of energy. I mean, how do you feel about your role there? ESG. It's a significant um, it's a significant topic. I'll, I'll put it as a topic because I think ESG is quite challenging for an organisation to grasp with because it's so broad. If you think about climate and sustainability, and then you think about the social part of it, how that applies to your workforce and your and your company's role in the community, and then the governance layer. A lot of times, organisations are doing elements of ESG and. I think the challenge for them is to try and treat it as one program. So when when we're engaging, what we're finding is that it's not being insurance driven ESG. I, I don't think the insurance. Once again, this is my anecdotal view. 
I don't, in my conversations with organisations, it doesn't seem to be insurance driven in, in a similar way that insurance can drive cyber outcomes in an organisation and what role we play in supporting them. Um, ESG doesn't seem to have reached that. There's definitely, obviously, regulatory aspects around it, like TCFD and, and modern slavery, and there's elements to it. But as a program, organisations, and if I think about CO2 intensive organisations are taking it very seriously because they understand that there is a big commercial aspect to it. If they're not running ESG programs effectively and having clear statements, that um, investors will punish them for that. So I think in my brief summary in the time that we have, it, it seems to be driven more by the finance industry than it is by the insurance industry at the moment. And we're supporting organisations in elements of ES, ESG. Um, and that depends on where they, they're interacting with Marsh. And the advisory practice that I'm part of is is quite broad. It has a, a large practice that looks at materiality through natural catastrophe modelling and so forth. And they're definitely getting engaged quite heavily by large CO2 intensive organisations. Mm. Um, I mean, I guess nonetheless, do you think there's a role for insurers and brokerages to, to push a bit harder on this because they often come under criticism. I mean, some are doing a good job according to environmental groups, others not so good. But, I mean, should there be more of a push if there, if there isn't one is at the moment? Yeah, I, honestly, I don't, have an, I, I don't have an opinion on that. I think it's such a broad and vexed topic to, to try and say, yes, they should be. Uh, I think it's, once again, it's sector by sector. It's organisation by organisation. Uh, I think it, the insurance industry... Like I'm not on the insurance side, I'm on the advisory side. I, I'm not familiar enough with the insurance industry side and their position on this to, to have an opinion on what they should be doing in the ESG space. Uh, but a lot of the time we are led by the position they take. I mean, we're representing clients to support their insurance needs and a lot of the time we have to interface with the insurance industry and their position on it. So I think we, we do get led a bit by them as well. Nick Martin, Head of Strategic Risk Consulting in the Pacific for the Global Brokerage Marsh. Thanks a lot for spending some time with IB Talk. Thank you, Danny. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher and Apple Podcasts.